0: Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun, And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ring of Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
0: Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. We got a huge college football game coming on Saturday. Undefeated number one Georgia versus undefeated number two Tennessee. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of a big-time SEC game makes me think of a certain announcerly voice. It makes me think of phrases like, oh my gracious. It makes me think of a belly laugh that could be heard from Gainesville to Baton Rouge. It makes me think of Vern Lundquist who called SEC games for CBS from 2000 to 2016. I want to talk to Vern about two crazy things that happened during that period. One is that the SEC became the best conference in college football, and that 3.30 Eastern time game became something like a national game of the week. Vern was the announcer who got to call moments like kick six and the prayer at Jordan Hare, and Terrence Cody's block field goals against Tennessee. He got to call the heroics of Tim Tebow, Johnny Football, Jacob Hester, Nick Saban, even less Miles. I asked Vern to relive all those moments. But the SEC didn't just produce BCS champions. It changed Vern's career. Until age 60, Vern was a prototypical number two announcer on the NFL and college sports, sort of like Ian Eagle was until he got the Final Four last week. Vern was a guy, but not the guy. Then Vern went to the SEC, called several dozen matchups that could be called Games of the Year and or Century, and by his 70s had attained a level of stardom he had never known before. Uncle Vern, as he's been nicknamed, is 82 now. We sat in his condo that he shares with his wife, Nancy, and talked about what it was like to finally become number one. Here's Vern Lundquist. All right, Vern, before the Tennessee-Alabama game last month, your old partner, Gary Danielson, said on CBS that you had texted
1: him before the game. What did you text him? Well, I had a sense that it was going to be a really challenging game for both schools and i just sent him a note and said these are the weekends when i really really miss sitting by your side and uh i do uh we got one coming up now it's going to be uh georgia tennessee and i miss it again uh, you know when they're playing bowling green it doesn't it doesn't get the juices flowing in uh, quite like it did but the sec is in my view Hands down, the the most significant, toughest conference in the country to win. So, uh, and in all the assignments I had throughout my career, uh, which still continues for one week a year, uh, the the one I treasured the most, really, of all the things I was lucky enough to do, was the assignment to the SEC. Uh, I, I really, really treasured those moments. So I just told Gary, uh, hey, pal, <laughs> I'll be watching.
0: What is it you miss? Is it broadcasting the game? Is it being the face that presents a huge
1: game like that to America? Brian, I think so. I think it's uh, it's knowing that you're in the middle of it all, uh, the fact that you do have the best seat in the house, and. Uh, 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 That it matters what you say and how you, how you say it. It matters only in the sense that uh, here, let me divert the the top, not, not divert, but uh, take a sidestep. I've always believed this. I believe that the responsibility of a play-by-play guy is to give the reason, a reason, uh, the listener, the viewer, uh, a compelling reason to be invested in the game. And you do that by anecdotal information, stories, both good and bad, about the competitors, the universities, the coaches, and and uh give them a reason to be uh alert enough to want to to want to care, uh whether it's positive or negative, and and stay with you. Uh I mean, yes, the names and numbers are vitally important. Down and distance, vitally important. But anecdotal information. And this is where the play-by-play guy has a responsibility much larger in this context than the analyst does. And this is because, too, it's college
0: football and the people watching are not going to know these guys. No, like they do
1: NFL players. Not, not in the least. I mean, I, I find myself, uh, every Saturday afternoon watching our telecasts or, uh, ESPN or uh, NBC on Sunday night, uh, I, I watch myself, and I pay attention to the lineups, but I don't get anything out of them because, the, you know, the if you, if you get get a guy dedicated to your school, he stays four years. Now with the uh, the possibility of transferring, you you need a roadmap to find out where everybody's going. <laughs> but but uh, and and people are not familiar with these guys unless you are an alumnus or a loyal follower of a specific team and so uh, that's the responsibility you have and uh uh that's i i i don't miss the memory memorization i darn sure don't miss the travel holy cow you got to be masochistic to go through airline travel these days and and uh But but it's the involvement and the knowledge that you do have. And I so much buy into all the pomp and circumstance. Uh, I love the bands. I love the pom-poms. I love pretending for three and a half hours every Saturday afternoon that every student athlete is also a student. That is a challenge at times. (laughs) But but the NCAA, and all of its wisdom, insists that they are student-athletes. Okay. Let's talk about your career before the SEC. Sure. You're at CBS
0: in the late 80s calling the NFL with Terry Bradshaw on the number two team. Right. Now, a lot of people know Terry as a pregame guy on CBS and then
1: on Fox. What was Terry like to call games with? Imagine uh, just as you would imagine him to be. Ha! Uh, I got the call from CBS after my two years of doing college ball, and they said uh, Terry's retiring from the Steelers, and uh, we are going to move you into the NFL as his partner. And to give you an idea of how my life was changing, the press conference was was held in New York City, at the old Twenty One Club on Fifty Second Street. Sure, and uh, I mean, it was a big deal, because Terry was a big deal. And we started that year and the next, 84 and 85, as the number seven broadcast team in the hierarchy. Pat Summerall and John Madden were number one, deservedly. But we were together for two years, 84, 85. Inexplicably, they split us up. They never explained it. They just said, we're going to change your assignments. That's when I worked with Pat Hayden. In 86, 87, my partner was Dick Vermil, both wonderful guys. And then in 88, they called again without any background and said, we're going to reunite you and Terry again. And magically, we had improved dramatically (laughs) in those two years because all of a sudden, Terry and I were number two to uh, John and Pat. And then, uh, the quality of life was greatly enhanced. Uh, we, we got a lot of really good games. We got our first playoff game, which was huge. Uh, that was Philadelphia at Chicago. And it became known as the Fog Bowl. uh, Amazing experience. Uh, now, 88 and 89, we worked together. And, uh, then Terry said to me one, one day that, CBS had asked the two of us to uh, go to the NFL owners meeting and make a presentation. So we were in the car having flown in. I can't even remember where it was now. But Terry said, Bubba, <laughs> I think I'm going to ask you to go to the studio because he was so frustrated with the awareness that as long as John Madden was working number one, he had no chance to be number one. And one reason he won four Super Bowls is that he is very competitive. And so I understood. I truly did. You mentioned being a number two guy. Two of your partners,
0: Pat Hayden, who you mentioned, and Billy Cunningham, in the 80s gave you the nickname Otis, like Otis the Elevator Company.
1: Boy, you have done your research. What did they mean by calling you well, Otis? Well, they, that they was funny because I had worked with Billy. He's a wonderful guy. And I'd worked with Pat, who was an equally wonderful guy, and uh, we were together at at the Masters, as a matter of fact, and having lunch. Pat, Billy, myself, and I don't know how this this conversation, but Billy had moved up to the number one NBA job, and Pat had moved up to the number one uh, college football job, and so they were discussing. Their uh, elevation, their promotion. And Billy's the one who said, you know, we're going to nickname you Otis because both of us were able to g- get on your elevator and ride to the top. So uh, I, I, that's a fond memory for me when, when Billy said that. And the gist being, they got number one jobs. Yes. Rode you right to the top. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you were the number two guy. A perennial. I was a perennial Avis. I mean, honest to gosh, and it used to gnaw me to death. I mean, why? But again, it's an executive decision, and the the difference in in our business, and I think it's to a, to a, probably an equally uh, equal extent. It's the same in your craft. Uh, there, no, you can't go to your boss and say, "Hey, look, how many cars I sold last month." It's a subjective judge, judgment. And there's never any explanation. How did Terry Bradshaw and I drastically improve in two years? And we didn't we didn't see each other, but somehow we were really good. And so, yeah, that's that was the oldest nickname. So,
0: 1999, you're calling NFL games again for CBS, again on the number two team. Yep, with yep. Dan Dierdorf. Yep, CBS starts to talk to Dick Enberg or you get word that they are talking to Dick Enberg. And the supposition here is that he's going to come to CBS and take your job on the NFL, Mm -hmm. on the number two team. Mm -hmm. And you are going to go to call
1: SEC games for CBS on Saturday afternoon. And I fought it. I didn't want to do it. I the, The rumors became so persistent that I called Sean McManus. And... We chatted, and I told him my concerns, and I said, now, if you signed Dick, it wouldn't affect me, would it? And he said, well, first of all, I can't imagine he did what executives did so well. He maneuvered sideways, and, and he said, uh, he's such a high-ticket item, I don't think we would sign him. And In that context, he expounded a little bit, and uh, then And he said now in the unlikely event that we were to hire dick enberg how would you feel about moving to the southeast conference and i said the appropriate things and said goodbye we were in the kitchen in our home in steamboat springs colorado and i looked at nancy and i said honey pack your bags for tuscaloosa (laughs) and and my first game ever in the sec was Florida, Tennessee. I'd never been to Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. It was a thrilling experience, 107,000. And Jesse Palmer, who's now in the pre- and post-game shows, uh, hit a pass with 10 seconds to go in the game. And Jabbar Gaffney did or did not make the catch. Uh, but the, the the side judge, or the back judge, rather, ruled a touchdown. Here comes to Blitz, quick clip, call hold long enough? The official says, yes! Oh boy, is that going to be controversial? And we got off the air, and I looked at Todd Blackledge, my partner. And I took a deep breath and I said, Are they all this way? <laughs> and he, he looked at me and grinned and he said, Enough of them. What struck you about SEC games that were different than your average college football game? I grew up in Austin, so I was familiar with. Texas and Oklahoma. I did Michigan and Ohio State once or twice. I've done UCLA and USC once or twice. There is nothing, nothing to equal the passion surrounding Alabama and Auburn. I've never seen anything to to equal that, never. Just a completely
0: different level of buy-in and connection, and noise
1: in the stadium itself. Oh, yeah. There's a legend, of course. There always seem to be legends associated with the SEC. But legendarily, you're announced at birth to declare. I, I, share, I share a fun anecdote about that. We When Nancy and I, the, the first 11 years I did the SEC, we did that dreaded commute. But then Sean, my boss, Asked me at Augusta one year, he said, "Would your life be any easier if we provided uh, a corporate apartment for you in Atlanta?" Whoa, would it ever? So for the last six years, uh, we moved to Atlanta, and they—it was, uh, you know—it was not nothing lavish, but it was functional, and it gave us access. So we decided that anything that was under a four-hour drive, we would make the drive and avoid the hassle of going through security and all that sort of thing. So, we had a game in Tuscaloosa, about a four-hour drive from from downtown Atlanta. So, we did the game, and now we're in the drive. Nancy and I are in the drive coming back to Atlanta. And we stopped for lunch at a Cracker Barrel restaurant, which is five-star dining in the south. And so... And we collect coffee mugs. I had a cup of coffee here in our Austin condo this morning out of a South Carolina coffee mug. And so we didn't have one for whatever reason from either Alabama or Auburn. So we stopped at this Cracker Barrel, and we put coffee mugs on the counter to check out. And the young lady picked them up and looked at them and looked at us, and she said, are these Christmas gifts, or are y'all a split family? <laughs> that, sums, that sums it up. A couple more big calls I want to ask you about. October
0: 6, 2007, the number nine Florida Gators and their quarterback Tim Tebow went to Baton Rouge to play number one LSU, who went on to win the national championship. That is the game where Les Miles went for it on fourth down five times and got it all and converted it all five times now fourth and one
1: les miles has gambled all game is he gonna do it again how about this as my friend bill raftery would say onions what do you remember about that game jacob hester uh he was the fullback and i believe he carried it on all five uh, efforts i just i was in awe I love Les Miles. I used to love doing games with him. And uh, we so we really enjoyed when we got to go to LSU. But I just remember the audacity. Uh, there's another euphemism for that, too, that Les Miles put on display that night. To trust his team to block that well and for Jacob Hester <clears throat> to run that hard and to convert those things. Uh, and they won the game. I think 28-24. My brother and his sons, I was able to get them tickets to the game. So they, they've only seen one SEC game. And that was their memory. And, uh, what, I mean, again, it's that we're talking about this, the passion. And there's nothing like a night game in Baton Rouge. Conversely, they hate it when we, we move a game to 3.30 Eastern because it cuts into their drinking time. <laughs> uh, I got to know James Carville quite well, and he's a well-known LSU. And he told me once, Gary and I were on his, he does a radio pregame show in LSU and lives in Baton Rouge. And we were guessing his show, and, and he complained to us on this statewide radio show Y'all, y'all don't understand the culture down here, and I said I believe we do. But when you're there at night, and and uh, the public address announcer is a guy named Dan Boer, B-O-E-R, and he announces it's it's sunset in Death Valley, and the roar starts. Uh, it's just thrilling. To be immersed in that that kind of environment and that's again brian that you don't get that if you're doing oregon state ucla you just
0: don't tim tebow is one of the handful of guys from that era of sec football who was almost bigger than the game itself yep how did you find tebow in pregame meetings
1: i love the guy i just loved him because he expresses his belief and he lives by that word uh uh, I just thought the world of I got a quick ante- I got two quick anecdotes about Tim and remind me about a guy I met over the weekend but uh I first met Tim in Tuscaloosa. Uh he was introduced to me he was on a recruiting visit to Alabama but he he grew up in in the Jacksonville area and ultimately uh decided to go to Florida. So we were chatting with him one day And Gary, who can be a little acerbic, uh, Gary looked at Tim and he said, what's your favorite uh, pastime? What do you like to do other than football? And Tim said, deadly serious. Uh, I love to preach in prisons. I love to try and convert prisoners. And Gary looked at him skeptically and said, did you ever convert anybody? And he said, no, not yet. But I'm not going to quit trying. And he, he was, he's devoted to that. He's the son of a Baptist preacher. His wife, his, I'm sorry, not his wife. His sister was, well, while, while he was active at LSU, she was serving a mission in Bangladesh. Uh, so, uh, he's such a good man. And he lives by what he preaches. And, and anyway, so now there's an NCAA rule that you must be an active student. Uh, even though if, even if you've graduated, you have to take one upper division course while you're playing football. And this happened to Matt Leinert at USC. So Matt stays on for one three, three hour course and Tim was taking one and we were jockeying back and forth with him. And I told him that Matt Leinert had a similar experience and was, had had to do that at Southern Cal. And I said, what's your, what's your three-hour course? He said, what'd Matt Leiner do? And I said, his was Introduction to Ballroom Dancing. And Tim said, mine's not that tough. <laughs> now. That's a good answer. Oh, it was great. Just great. But he had that kind of charming personality. Uh, last, last, well, the Saturday prior to us doing this, I was at the Georgia-Florida game. And so, we're down in the press dining area. And a fella comes up and introduces himself to me as Tate Casey. And I said, it's great to meet you. He said, I played at Florida. And I said, what position do you play? He said, I was a tight end. And he said, I think you might remember a pretty good play I was involved in. And I said, help me, what? He said, the famous jump pass when Tebow from a yard out approached the line and then jumped and he double pumped while he's in the air and lofted this moon ball. And it was Tate Casey who caught that tumbling backwards and got these both feet down and, and for a touchdown against LSU, as a matter of fact, but I I was able to connect the dots and put Tate Casey. So it, it reminded me of another facet of Tim Tebow's career. Fast forward two years.
0: October 4th, 2009, Alabama, they're on their way, their first national championship under Nick Saban, is playing Tennessee. Tennessee lines up to kick the winning field goal and Bama defensive tackle Terrence Cody blocks it. His second blocked field goal of the day.
1: Four seconds to go, Lincoln for the lead. Oh, my. Alabama wins. What do you remember about that game? I remember Terrence Cody. They called him Mount Cody. Uh, He was a junior college transfer, and he had played two years at Gulfport, Mississippi, junior college, and he was huge. Uh, He was like 6'6", 6'5", 6'6", 320 pounds and somehow they could not block him and i i, I remember the call it's cody uh, cody what something i remember until until i tried to say it cody again something like that pretty emphatically and i mean the same guy blocks two field goals in one game that's rare but cody was rare uh so yes i i have real good real fond memories of that experience Here's something I've always loved about your big
0: calls. Every announcer wants to be accurate about the facts. But when I hear you deliver one of those calls, you are also accurate about the emotional quality of the moment. You are harnessing the way people at home or people in the stands feel about a crazy play.
1: Or a big play, yeah. Is that something you set out to do when you call a play like that? I don't set out to do it, but uh, I'll divert from football to golf for the moment. Uh, Tiger Woods made this miraculous chip shot in two thousand five, and uh, on the sixteenth hole of Augusta, and it—he had to hit it ninety feet with perfect backspin. To, it hopped twice and then turned right and proceeded to tumble down toward the hole. And it sat on the lip of the, of the cup for 1.8 seconds. And when it dropped in, my reaction was, in your life, have you ever seen anything like that? And I was a fan at that moment. And I was reacting like most fans, I think, who were watching were feeling. I've never seen anything like that in my life. But it certainly wasn't uh, thought out it, we we work in a reactive environment, and I you can't pre-plan, although some guys do, and then they chisel and hammer and force it in. I know several. Uh, to hell with you, if you don't think it fits. I'll make it fit. No, you don't. Anyway, I I said that because because it it's I thought people sitting at home were feeling exactly that. Man, oh man. Martha, I've never seen anything like that. And that was my reaction. So now back to football. The share experience because the greatest football game I've ever seen uh, or ever been a part of, that's better to say, was uh, the Iron Bowl in 2013. No, return by Chris Davis. Davis goes left. Davis gets a block. Has another block. Chris Davis. No flags. Touchdown. Auburn. An answered prayer. Because I've seen it replayed so many times. I said, There are no flags. And then I thought to myself, Dear God, don't let there be any flags. And. I, I le- And you couldn't hear it, but I was breathing a sigh of relief. Like, <laughs> This is 2013. Yeah. You make that
0: call. Mm-hmm. And I watched this the other day. You laid out for a minute and seven seconds after that. And is that by design? Is that just what felt natural in the moment?
1: Uh, I think it's like the tiger call. I probably would not have done that. If I weren't really experienced in the craft of broadcasting, uh, I think if, if, if the tiger call had happened when I was 30 years old, I'd have jumped all over it. and I would have done the same thing on, on the iron bowl. But I think I have the discipline having had similar experiences, not, not that emotional, but I've, I've had experiences in big moments before, and I would have I would have done a play by play you know he's at the 50 the 40 know yeah, yeah, yeah. instead of let Steve Milton a brilliant director do his work because in that period of silence and Gary didn't say a word either uh and Steve just created a visual symphony you know he it was perfect and again I've seen it so many times because it gets it gets replayed. And and uh, Steve just did, what a story he told by the use of his cameras, and Gary and I didn't want to intrude on his work, so we just shut up, and thank God we did. Uh, and then uh, when when it was appropriate, I said, "Well, that might be worth an, another look." <laughs> Very deadpan. Oh yeah
0: all this time you're calling sec games sudden things starts to happen urban Meyer and Florida win the national championship after the 2006 season that starts this run of seven straight sec teams winning the national title. How could you feel that changing
1: the CBS game of the week? Well, I think we, we were witness, witnesses to history. Uh, and the, the, uh, the expert nature of the product that these teams were producing and putting on the field every Saturday afternoon, uh, I, I said at the outset or toward the beginning of our conversation, CBS made a commitment to take what essentially was a regional sport uh, and and present it nationally. Now we were helped in no small measure by the FBS rankings because suddenly what what teams in the southeast were doing was relevant to the future fortunes of teams in Oregon or California and vice versa what somebody in in uh, the big 10 was, was doing how well they were doing was going to affect what was going on in the sec and the sec prevailed and i know people have a passion in the big 10 and 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 in the Pac 12, and, and, uh, and they think, well, wait a minute. But now having, uh, and I'm spoiled by this because I've seen so many of these SEC games. Uh, I do really believe the product, not top to bottom, but top to midway is unequal to by any of the conference in, in the country. And they've proven this in part by that run of consecutive national titles. And I think people are weary of, oh, my God, it's Georgia and Alabama again. Well, and that's why I think a lot of people in the country are pulling for Tennessee. I really do. And that's, you know, that's heresy in Athens or, or Tuscaloosa. Holy cow. I'll get ridden out of town on a rail if I say that. Well, I'm saying it nationally. So, what the
0: heck? So here's an assignment calling SEC football you initially regarded as a demotion. What did calling those games change about your career?
1: Oh my gosh. Gave it prominence that to which I aspired. There's you can't do what I've done all these years without a certain degree of narcissistic self-aggrandizement. I think all of us uh, who do this do not shy from the spotlight. Uh, And we like the regard, the esteem. Uh, That's a a reality. And suddenly, uh, I mean, I I told one of my two hosts for the last weekend at Georgia, Florida, um, Lauren Smith, who's a brilliant, brilliant historian and writer. Uh, lives in Athens and ran track for Georgia back in the fifties. But we went down to the sideline for the last three minutes of the game. And, uh, you know, because of my association with the sec, there were people in the stands who were yelling and saying, welcome back. And we miss you and all that sort of thing. Well, I'd be lying through my teeth if I don't, told you that didn't mean anything to me. Of course it did. And uh, I relished that.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere, get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth, plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
0: We talked about feeling like a number two announcer at CBS. Mm -hmm. When you start doing the SEC games, it goes along. The conference gets so big. Did you
1: feel like a number one guy? Well, I did, Brian, yes. And and <laughs> at long last, because I'd always aspired to be the lead announcer, uh, and I never had been. I was always, uh, I mentioned a while ago, I was Avis to Hertz, and I was number two to Summerall. Uh, in basketball, I was number two to Brent Musburger for a while. Uh, now I forged lasting friendships with my partners in that number two position, but I'll give you another Otis Elevator thing. Bill Raftery. Bill might be the closest friend I've had among the dozens of partners in uh, across all these twenty different sports that I've done, and 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 Bill got promoted, and deservedly so, and and. Uh, You know, he's worked now the final four with with Jim and and Grant Hill. But I was always one a for the long. And that was the way it was explained to me by Sean McManus. Okay, we're going to we're not going to make you number one. But how about you consider yourself one a? Well, I might as you know, I could have been budget. Or national <laughs> Alamo. Yeah, it's exactly enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did it feel like to be number one? Well, it just, it, it, my self image improved. I know that. For real? The oh, way you yes, absolutely. Yourself? Because I felt successful. And, and I look back, people have asked over the years, well, you never called a Super Bowl. Is that a huge hole in your resume? No, it's not. No, it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, but I don't regret not having called the Super Bowl. Uh, I've had enough satisfying experiences in in this career that goes so far back that. Uh, but it was validation by the company and by the viewing audience that I had meaning. I guess to, that that's way too serious a phrase to use in this context but yeah yeah
0: during this period the writer spencer hall gave you the nickname uncle Vern. what yeah. did it
1: mean to be uncle Vern? well i know spencer hall and 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 he and i chatted about this uh he said that i was like an old shoe <laughs> and and uh he my presence in a living room allowed other people to plod around in slippers. <laughs> uh, but I like I liked the nickname, and I get called that uh, when I'm at people uh, at sporting events now. And if people recognize me, I get that Uncle Vern thing a lot. Uh, CBS, uh, the marketing department, uh, headed by Jen Salvatel, they took taken to calling me Uncle Vern in press releases. You know, Uncle Vern's still around, <laughs> uh, but no, I it's 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 a very comforting thing because unless you're mean and vile, I think everybody has a favorite uncle, and uh, some people probably don't, but most people do. And to to have me held in that context, I I like that a lot. Did you aspire to be warm and comforting on the air? I don't think so. I think. I think it's a product of my environment growing up. Uh, it's not something that is manufactured. There's there's a there's an amazing quality about television, I think. And this gets a little woo woo, and I don't mean to do that, but there's something between going on between the viewer and the person on the other side of the camera. And I think this so-called Wall is broken down in imperceptible ways, but the essence of the person who's looking into the camera is conveyed to the person who's viewing. And I think the camera has, I'll bet you that if you're watching a television set and you're, let's make it sports and you see someone on the air and you think, He's an arrogant jerk. 90% of the time, he's going to be an arrogant jerk. And I've had that happen with me. If I, you know, when I finally meet, and it's a very small industry, and most of us know each other. I Now it's a new generation of guys that are doing it, but the guys in their 60s and, and 70s, and uh, I mean, I know almost every one of them, and they all know, know me, guys who are alongside me. Uh, and I think if you think somebody's going to be nice, they will be. Conversely, if you think he's a jackass, he's going to be a jackass. It's, it's, I don't know how, how it happens, but it does. It's interesting you say that because when I talk to people
0: who aren't in the industry, like my mom watching football Mm -hmm. on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, the way she looks at the television is like, I like him or I don't like him. And it's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's that feel, that whatever feeling is conveyed through the screen. And it might be somebody who's a terrific broadcaster.
1: Yeah, yes, yes. I'm thinking of one guy in particular right now, and no names. (laughs) I can't wait until we turn these mics off. (laughs) Okay, that'll be a private conversation. Yeah, And, and if somebody's arrogant, you can sense it, I think. And if they're not, if they're accessible, and I think those of us who choose to be public people have an obligation to be accessible to people. That's what you aspired to, and that comes with the territory. Here's another key part of the Uncle Vern persona, the deep voice. My dad. My dad. Uh, two things, the, the quality of my voice and the belly laugh they're they're products of my father my dad was uh he passed away 22 years ago but he he lived to 85 and he he uh he had only three churches he was a lutheran minister and he was in Everett, Washington Austin and then uh they moved to Omaha when I was 16 years old and that's where he died and is buried my mom as well uh but he had I thought he was the voice of God in Sunday. You know, there's an authoritarianism that is conveyed by a guy who's preaching to you from four or five feet above you. Uh, That's probably by design uh, because it is the voice of God. But he had a laugh that I inherited. And he had a speaking voice that I was lucky enough to hear. And he had... Uh, no accent (laughs)
0: thank heaven so there's dad and the voice of god Uh uh-huh the belly
1: laugh yeah and then a few thousand cigarettes over the years oh my gosh yeah yeah and and i quit drinking two and a half years ago but there were copious amounts of jack daniels and johnny walker that were down my esophagus so I quit drinking and, and I quit smoking. I quit smoking 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And what I still have from that 30 years of smoking is this chronic bronchitis. Uh, the doctors said, oh, it'll all heal. The doctors lied. couple more big calls for you, Vern. Sure.
0: November 5th, 2011. We had one of those many games that are dubbed the game of the century. Number one, LSU. At number two alabama what is it like to call a game that is preceded by that much hype
1: uh because i had done it so many times uh there was no concern about being ready or uh that's a 9-6 game isn't it yeah 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 and many people thought it was an awful game i thought it was one of the most. Savagely contested defensive battles I'd ever seen. But going into it, it was just hype heaven. And heaven knows CBS uh, would, would, would oil that can um, as much as they could. I'll guarantee you this. Uh, and I don't know, but I, I promise you. Now, the National Football Foundation came out this week. Well, college football did too, but I know that CBS marketing is paying attention to what the national football, they said Georgia's number one, Tennessee's number two. I'll guarantee you they'll come on the air on Saturday and say welcome to top-ranked Georgia and second-ranked Tennessee. Now, the college football playoff committee disagreed, right? They've got Tennessee number one and Georgia three, but the hype machine will be in motion before this game. Uh, anyway, because I I had been, hey, I did the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer in 94. Estimated audience of the Wednesday night battle between Tanya and Nancy was 126 million people. And when Scott Hamilton and I heard about that the next day, Scott said, Thank God I didn't have an awareness of that. My I wouldn't have been able to open my mouth. Uh, so, the fact that we're getting 13 or 14 million and i'm sure that's what that audience was Uh, after a while i mean i was scared to death the first time i opened my mouth uh as a play-by-play guy scared witless but after if you've done it a lot that fear factor is leveled Uh, not it there's there's always a little hope I'm up to this. But that's a good thing. You know, it keeps you alert. Uh, And fortunately, most of the time I have been. I've had some notorious bad ones. I remember doing a whole game where it was the Detroit Lions, and and number 86, I kept perceiving him as number 88. So I called the wrong name about four times. Well, oh. Did I hear about that but for the most part uh, if 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 the can if the the job has been done as it should be all the preparation is is complete by the time the game starts that LSU Bama game was
0: interesting because there's so much hype for the regular season game that it comes around that they're going to meet again in the national championship and that's when I could feel the nation saying the sec might be great it might be the greatest thing since sliced bread but man this is a lot of sec in our lives Uh, yes and there was a you could really feel a backlash
1: in earnest oh i think so and and it's like i i do believe there's a weariness now with the constant dominance of the sec i get i sense that um hey we live in colorado we know what the absence of excellence is all about. Holy cow. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, I, and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm never, I'm, I'm so grateful for my association with the SEC. I'm never going to feel uh, negative about anything they do. Uh, but I, I get a, I, I understand those feelings around the country. Uh, there's a there's a weariness that has set in. Yet again, are they really?
0: Yeah, they are. November 10th, 2012, which is 10 years ago next week, Johnny Manziel goes to Alabama and beats number one Alabama on his way to winning the Heisman Trophy.
1: Snap from Patrick Lewis. Four-man Alabama rush. Got him. Oh, they no, didn't. they didn't. Oh my gracious! Yep. How about that?
0: What was Johnny football like in a pregame meeting?
1: Ah, uh, cocky. Remember that before one of the games at at uh, at A and M, we had uh, by by contractual uh, by contractual obli- by contractual agreement, uh, players are to be made. Available to us on Friday or pregame, all that. I mean, I watch these poor coaches on pregame interviews. They just hate them. And I understand why they – anyway, Johnny came in wearing a beanie, you know. And he was a little cocky. Johnny came from a well-to-do family. And uh, it hasn't gone very well for him. But, boy, was he exciting. Holy cow! And that Alabama game that one we t- we didn't get a chance to talk to him before the Alabama game. I do know that both of us, Gary and, and I were completely bollocked by the when when he we thought he had you know fumbled and he just held the ball, hit the, hit the ball and found the guy in the back of the end zone, and then he hit that unbelievable long distance pass. He was gifted, but I just got this sense of cockiness about him. And he, you know, we're both well, well in the advance of years of him. He was in his the twenties then. Yeah, ten years ago. Yeah. Oh thousand twelve. Right. Yeah. Gosh. And and I just thought he was he was very diffident, just almost
0: dismissive. One of those plays in that game. One of his first touchdown passes. You said, "Oh my gracious!" After now that's a very Vern Lundquist call. Yeah. Where does that phrase come from? I have no
1: idea. I don't. <laughs> I've heard I you d- say it dozens of times. And somebody the other night said, "Please give us a how do you do." <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I don't. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I. It's just me, and it's. Just my way of expressing things, I guess. It, it's not pre-planned. It's just a gut reaction to what's going
0: on in front of you. Another perk of doing SEC games, you told me about one time. Your wife Nancy would sit in the booth
1: mm-hmm. yeah. during
0: the game. Yeah. Was she watching the game or what was she doing? Yeah.
1: Well, they the crew always took care of Nance before they took care of anybody else, and uh, as yes, the, they should. Yes, and they the crew loved her. And Nancy actually worked with me for five years as my spotter. And that is a job of great responsibility. Uh, because it, it's hard to explain this if you can't see what I'm saying. But, uh, during the, let's say play, the television is, is football is a perfect sport for TV because you got play, replay. Uh, it's rectangular, fits the screen perfectly. So. While I'm talking to Gary and we're he's doing replays and I'm looking at him, there's substitutions going on over here. Uh two or three in two platoon football. So when I look back, Nancy or the other spotters that I've had would look at me and she'd nudge me and, and then on a spotting chart, which I prepared, she would point to who's in and we had visual signals, who's in, who's out, whether they're three tight ends or two running backs and uh, s- such as that, so that I've got an idea on the spotting chart, the actual guys on the field. And and it's vitally important to what we do, even more so than, than uh, the statistician, I think. During this period, you're calling SEC games,
0: YouTube appears well, on the internet, social media becomes part of people's lives, and all of a sudden, your calls aren't just going to vanish into the ether or appear on some highlight tape. They're yeah. going to be preserved, and replayed and perhaps studied did that sit in your mind at all when you were calling it
1: oh no no uh, never i never no i'm never doing something with a sense that gosh i hope they've got this on videotape uh i've never because as i as i mentioned earlier what what most of us do is reactionary and you you just uh you you never you never use an expression uh in the context of wanting it to be remembered it's just your reaction to what has happened in front of you uh and that's i think you just you've got to be true to yourself and i think the best guys who do this and there are several who are excellent excellent and enjoyable listens they're themselves and we go back to this uh mystical thing that happens if you perceive them to be good people they're going to be and conversely the the opposite is true
0: last moment for you you talked about kick six it is easy to forget that two weeks before kick six in that very same stadium jordan Hare stadium it was auburn versus georgia georgia had this crazy comeback in the fourth quarter auburn trailed 38 37 with less than a minute left it's fourth and 18 Nick Marshall lets this pass go. It gets tipped right into the hands of wide receiver Ricardo Lewis, who scores a 73-yard touchdown.
1: Let's it go! Oh, my God! Oh, my goodness! Oh, no! Ricardo Lewis! And I think those two defensive backs probably still wake up at three in the morning and think to themselves, all I had to do was knock the blessed ball down. But they wanted the glory, not a glory, but they were thinking about the interception. I don't think they were thinking about themselves, but his natural instinct to, to go for the ball. And if they do not attempt to intercept, he never sees the ball. And he made a remarkable play, Ricardo Lewis did, to reach back behind him because he was going full gallop. And and uh, that was another fa- famous Gary moment when we were leaving the air. Gary said on camera, as a rapper, he we not we might not have been on camera, but he said, he said, remember this moment, because you will never, ever, ever see a college football game end like this. This is the greatest finish. I've ever seen college football. Bing. Two weeks later. Two weeks later, we get Chris
0: Davis. (laughs) I remember watching the Ricardo Lewis pass at home. And in moments like that, when something crazy happens, I almost feel like I'm not processing what's happening. The time is getting jumbled up. And, you know, it's hard for me to focus in that
1: moment. Did you ever feel that in the broadcast booth? Uh, I don't think so. Now, have I ever had my mind wander? Yeah, it's frightening because all of a sudden you think, "What? They're getting ready to snap the ball." What? What were you thinking about that? But no, uh, I, not not really. Uh, but my attention span's not as great as it used to be. And fortunately, the one event I still do at CBS is golf, and uh, And I can concentrate on two golfers in the final pairing of the day. it's, It's tough to screw that up.
0: Did you feel your work at CBS would be judged both by the network and by the viewers at home on the big moments and how you handled them? Or would it be that four and a half hours of first down runs and second down
1: runs and all that preceded them? I think for the most part, it's the big moments, uh, and i 've been blessed you 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 hope through all the preparation and anticipation of a game, you hope that something compelling and memorable will happen. We all do, and then the hope is that you're verbally equipped to punctuate that moment uh, and and in some way enhance the viewer's appreciation of what he just saw uh. And fortunately, I've had more good
0: moments in that context than bad ones. Two thousand sixteen was your last season calling the s e c
1: yeah when did you know it was time to go uh it was a collaborative decision uh sean and 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 I discussed it uh, i was seventy six uh and he and I had a very good conversation, very good conversation about when it might be time to step away. And he kind of nudged me in that direction, which is his job as the CEO of a sports division, the CBS. Uh, And that is to, to replenish the water, you know, put a new fish in the barrel. (laughs) And, And so we agreed at the beginning of the year, and that year, you know, we're sitting in our Austin condo and I'm looking at a, a frame jersey over here in the wall from Peyton Manning. And all this stuff, all this memorabilia occurred in 2016. And farther down the hall, in the entry hall here, uh, there's a frame jersey from UCLA because they were playing at A&M. Uh, and I treasure these mementos on because they're meaningful to me. Uh, but it all came about because it was announced in September that this would be my final season. Sean Sean and I had a recent talk about uh, my work at Augusta. Uh, I'm I'm good to go for next year. That'll be number 39. And he and I have agreed, this is not announced, and I don't mean to jump the gun here, but in all likelihood, uh, number 40 will be my last. Uh, just because it will be time. And uh and so uh, I think that's the plan and I'm very com but Sean, going back to Sean, he's a great senior ma- manager, uh and he's a brilliant man. I now I'm gilding the lily here a little bit, but his father, by the way, those who don't know, Sean McManus's dad was Jim McKay, uh the best storyteller I've ever heard sports television. Bar none. And anyway, uh Sean said, Maybe it's time. And it was time. Uh and I I miss being a part of what's happening. Uh, I was antsy the other night. I, I, we I sat in the press box with my buddy Lauren Smith and and I could see the television monitor happy, and I went down to see Brad Nestler and Gary Danielson two hours before the game. We chatted. I'd had lunch with the crew, and, and uh, then I went back to our seat in the press box. Now, Gary and Brad were sitting at the 50. I was in an enclosed seat, uh, in an enclosed press box at the goal line. Wait a minute. Don't you know who I think I am? <laughs> and I could have stayed with them, but I didn't want to do that. Brad Nestler needs, deserves his own space. He doesn't meet, need me hanging around the background. Being a backseat announcer. Oh, yeah, yeah, whispering to him. You should say this. No, not no. I would never do that. So I was with Lauren, and we were down. And, and, then, and of course, it's a, an enclosed press box. Which is another thing I miss about the ambient noise that comes in and helps underline. And so, anyway, uh, I could see the replay, but there's a minute, a second and a half going up and coming down, and there was a delay. And I'd catch myself looking at the replay and unaware that a play had happened down here. And it was really disconcerting. So, much better, not much better to sit in the stands, much better to sit in the broadcast booth. Announcers don't
0: like to talk about getting older because they're always afraid their network bosses are you listening. It. You got it. But now that you've had a little distance, what got harder about calling games as you got older? Uh, the memory,
1: the memorization. Uh, when we are at home in Steamboat Springs, I'd, I'd complete the spotting board on Monday afternoon. We, we Sunday was a day of travel and a day off. Uh, so I'd read newspapers on the plane going bad, planes, Going back home, and and then Monday began the day of preparation, and we have a Steamboat's a beautiful, beautiful little town, resort town, uh, and we have a river that runs through it, as the phrase goes, and uh, we have a court trail. It's a, a riding, jogging, walking path that goes right along the river, and I'd get my spotting chart beginning Monday afternoon after it was finished, and I would memorize. The three deep, the depth chart. And you must do this because you don't have time. If, say, for example, the second, second team defensive tackle catches a fumble in the air and he's rumbling. Chris Berman would say rumbling, bumbling, whatever he says. <laughs> and, but, and you don't have time to go, Oh, who is that? You've got to know. And so you memorize. And I would walk up and down talking out loud to myself and laughingly people who knew me would call me the mumbling walker of Yampa Valley. And, but that's how I, I visualized the, the players and I'd read the, the spotting chart and I tried to memorize this depth chart. And I could, I, I don't have a photographic memory, but I have a pretty good one. Used to, used to, and I could memorize in inside of an hour, hour and a half. Uh, now, no way, no way. So that was a huge challenge. And uh, I don't
0: miss doing that. So you're going to do 16 at the Masters next year, next spring, yeah. which will be number 39. And then hopefully one more the following spring, yeah. which will be number 40. And then you feel okay calling
1: it a day after that? Ah, ah. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, we have essentially agreed, uh, Sean and I have, that that that'll be it. Uh, And you know what? In all candor, I'm going to be 84. It's time to, as they would say, move on with your life. Uh, So I, I don't anticipate going beyond that. I really don't. Fern Lundquist, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Brian, I enjoy your work. I really, really do. So, my pleasure. It's time for the second
0: weekly edition of David Shoemaker Guesses, the Strained Pun Headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about Carrot Top, a kinder, gentler Carrot Top, was the taming of the dew. Taming of the dew. Today's headline... (laughs) Comes from, well, my own travels, David, through book world. I was at Vroman's bookstore in Pasadena the other day. Mm-hmm. I saw a new biography of Don Rickles. New biography of Don Rickles. Wow, that's cool. We're looking for the title here, and just like Monday's headline, I want you to think Shakespeare. Okay. Shakespeare. What was the new Don Rickles bio's strained pun? Title. Oh
2: my! I I am not I am not the person asked about Don Rickles references. What did Don Rickles? I mean, he's I know he's a comic. I know what he looks like. I know he was a little bit of a, 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 a grump. Is yes, the, insult um, comic.
0: I think you could apply that an term An Insult here. comic. Okay. Um, what if I spot you the Merchant of Venice? Is what um, we're playing off here. <laughs> so Don Rickles was the Merchant of.
2: Of uh, malice, the merchant of um, the not punny mer- enough, my the friend. The merchant
0: of um, uh, insult dang. comedy, Just making fun of the menace? audience. Uh No, um, close. Uh, it seems a little seems a little dire for Don Rickles, don't you like Menace? The merchant of uh, why can't I think of this?
2: This is, I'm a so wic- off a this wicked
0: week. tongue. It's it's emanating from his wicked tongue. The merchant of. Uh, Uh, his fangs are venom. The the Merchant of Venom.
2: I was trying to go for a rhyme. That wasn't going to (laughs) work.
0: He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Proaction Magic by Erica Cervantes. Back Monday, more lukewarm takes about the media. And then back Tuesday night with more lukewarm takes about the midterm. See you then, David.
2: See you later, Brian.